Hi guys, I'm Omi. And I'm Zara, and welcome to episode four of What's Your Own. Today is the first episode of our One Crime segment. And in these segments, we will be picking a topic, and we will be discussing two cases about those topics, and going into detail about it. And then in the end, we pick a winner who picks the next topic for the following Wine and Crime segment. I hope you guys like it. (laughs) (laughs) So we picked, given everything that's going on in the world at this moment in time, we wanted to keep the momentum going. So we have picked this week as our topic, racially motivated murders. Yeah, this one is quite a hard one, I'd say. Yeah, I felt like, and I say it again later, like, I just got into a black hole of knowledge and racism and oppression and it was just mad, to be honest, to get myself out of it. But maybe we should start with the happier note, our wine. Oh, <laughs> yes. What wine are you drinking today, friend? <laughs> so, it's white. <laughs> white wine. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I don't know much about this wine, I can't lie. I've just picked it out from the fridge. But I'm not a big wine wine drinker, and this is actually so tasty. It's very um peachy. Oh, it's, quite, it's quite yellowy to look at, but it's nice. I really like it. This is probably the first white wine that I've I've actually liked. It's um sorry, I haven't even named it. It's Duave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not for that. <laughs> is that E Fiori or J Fiori? I don't know. Um, and it says Lamberti at the bottom. Mm fancy can you tell i didn't buy this wine i can tell but that's fine i was lazy with my wine choice too to be honest i forgot to get wine we'll do better next segment guys um i decided on the most basic one ever again but i just found in my fridge and i know all you bitches out there are going to know exactly what i'm talking about it is the white (laughs) infantil by barefoot oh girl it's so nice and and wonderful and yeah don't judge me I'm a cheap bitch. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, okay. Now that we get the job done. It does. Oh, it does get the job done. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Do you think it's too early for us to be drinking? <laughs> Just to let you know, we've recorded this at twelve midday. I think it's five o'clock somewhere. And I feel like the Mediterranean countries drink wine early, and that that should be normalised everywhere. Mm. Back it. Not. <laughs> yeah, it's <sighs> summer. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I don't know why I said that. I'm just excited. It's the wine and the crime. <laughs> <laughs> oh my <laughs> god. <gasps> okay, right. Going on to the more sombre tone of the episode. We're going to have case number one now. So, based on the theme, I wanted to. This case is probably a very popular case in the UK, and I know that a lot of our listeners will know what this is. Um, It's actually this case of Stephen Lawrence's murder. Oh, yeah. I think it's important to highlight murder in the UK because with what's happening now, it's easy to forget how important racism has been in our history, and we forget that. So I'm gonna talk about Stephen Lawrence. To begin with, I'm just going to give a little background of Stephen. He was born in 1974 
And to give a little context about that era, the 70s, I'm going to say this right now. Enoch Powell, that racist man, he was still knocking about. The National Front were very popular back then. They were still knocking about, as they are now. Um, there was a bombing at the Tower of London by the IRA, and there was consistent protests by Black and Asian people for more rights, for more workers' rights, for more rights in general. Um, and, and that just shows how how much nothing has changed. Because, like, look at us today. We're still protesting, aren't we? Yep. Um, but then on the other side of that, you've got ABBA in the 70s. ABBA! <laughs> you know, important decade. Oh, I did not expect that to come out of your mouth. <laughs> 1974, the one with Waterloo. I don't remember that word. Sing the song. No. Waterloo. Oh, oh, fine. I'm not um, on this podcast. I'm not that drunk. <laughs> Let me finish this glass then, maybe. So anyways, yeah. So it was a very mixed era to be born in, but yeah, this is this is where Stephen was born. Stephen was born in 1974 in Plumstead. Big up. <laughs> Big up, <laughs> southeast. <laughs> um, and growing up, he was remembered as a very loving boy. He was very ambitious. He was super smart. He had ambitions of being an architect when he was growing up. Um, and he was just an average teenager when all of this kicked off. Stephen was born to Doreen, who was a special needs teacher, and Neville, who was a carpenter, and he was one of three. So Stephen growing up, he had that strong family unit, and they were known to be close. I think when we talk about these cases, it's easy to remember only the killers. Um, and something that's about the Stephen Lawrence one is that Stephen's name is at the forefront of it all and it's not the people who killed him. And I think that we need to keep that going because it's easy to remember like Ted Bundy but not remember who his victims were. Yeah. So I think that's why this case is just so important to us in this country especially. I want to move on to his murder. So... Thursday, the 22nd of April, 1993, Stephen had just finished school. He was 18 years old and him and his friend Dwayne Brooks had gone to his uncle's house to just play a couple of games. Um, and they spent quite a bit of time there and they left around 10. Stephen realised he was getting late and they wanted to find a quicker route home. So they got off the bus, the 286 bus. They got off at... I know they got off at Wellhall Road. So I know, That's like, where my cousin face. lives. That's so weird. This is this is this is it. Like so this case to home. because it is so close oh, to home. Goodness. This is cool. So he got off at Wellhall Road with his friend Dwayne, and they were waiting for a bus that was going to take a quicker time for him to get home. This just shows you the kind of boy he was. Like he wasn't. He didn't want to be late getting back. He tried to find a quicker route. He wanted to keep his family happy. Anyways, so Stephen was walking towards the junction just to see where the bus was. And this is where Dwayne says that he saw five white boys crossing the road, yelling at Stephen, yelling at him, yelling the N-word at him. And 
this was around 10.30. They grouped around him. They forced him to the ground and they stabbed him. They stabbed him twice, once in the auxiliary artery and once in the lung. Um, another two times across his collarbone and into his shoulder. Yeah. Dwayne had to see all of this. And he ran towards Stephen and, and yelled at him to run. The boys fled and Stephen and Dwayne started to run up towards Shooter's Hill. And that is where Stephen actually collapsed. He, he managed to run about 130 metres before he dropped to the ground. The boy has been stabbed about four times and he's managing to run that far. Like, can you take that in for a second? Oh, God. I don't think I would have lasted like two metres, let alone 130. No, my smoking lungs will not allow that. No. <laughs> but yeah, so he. this is where it starts to get very important about how the police handled this case from the very beginning. So Dwayne ran to get help and he went and found an off-duty police officer who came to the scene and started to question Dwayne Brooks, the guy who'd just seen his best friend get murdered. The officer started to question Dwayne Brooks more than in what he was saying. So he was giving out this information about how these white boys had come and attacked him and they'd run and he was trying to give that information so she could do something. But instead of taking that in, he was treated as a suspect of why his friend was lying there. Um, and he says this a lot, actually. He said he said this in interviews after that he was treated more of a suspect than he was a victim. And he actually suffered PTSD. Oh. Totally understandable. Like you've just seen your friend get murdered, but you're here being treated as a suspect because of the colour of your skin, basically. She had that bias. And this is something that Doreen mum later says is that the police always kind of just assumed that Stephen was involved in his own death and that he was involved in some sort of gang and he knew who his killers were it didn't cross it didn't cross their mind that this is a racially motivated murder um so yeah so Dwayne was questioned there and then and Stephen is still lying there he's lying there bleeding out and the police haven't administered first aid. This is like the first sign of misconduct. They're not doing anything to Stephen, who is lying there dying on the floor. There were two witnesses that actually were there that supported this statement from Dwayne saying that the police did nothing. So Stephen passed away before he actually got to the hospital that day. Um, and that was, that. this was, like I said, this was all between a half an hour space. So he got off the bus trying to get home and within that space he was stabbed and brutally murdered and then subconsciously accused of his own murder basically for being in a gang for being black and this is a stereotype that was so thriving during this time and it's sad because this is the 90s like you would expect her in the 90s yeah yeah but I say that but like look where we are today oh don't exactly Times will never change. Times will never change. Now let's have a more positive outlook because this case was pivotal in our system. That's good. So yeah, I'm going to move on to like the suspects and I want to say trial, but it took years to even get a trial. So like I said, I don't really want to give 
Stephen Lawrence's murderers much airtime because they don't specifically deserve it. And they should not be remembered in any of this. Just they should only be remembered as a racist thug that they were. Yep. There were loads of witnesses. There were several at the bus stop where this happened. And there was loads of residents because, you know, Wellhall Road, it's literally just a mm-hmm. busy, so busy. There's houses. Yep. yep. So there were residents that actually witnessed this too. And this is what's shocking. Within the first 48 hours of Stephen being murdered, there was over 26 tips to the police about who they could be. And these names were repeated constantly. The suspects were Gary Dobson, brothers Neil and Jamie April, Luke Knight and David Norris. These are the people involved in Stephen's murder. They had a reputation of being violent. They were known as thugs. David Norris was actually, he was a son of a gangster. This is the reputation that they had. Like they were known to be these, I want to say white trash. (laughs) White trash is fine, there's no judgment. Okay. They they were just these white trash boys that just had nothing better to do. It's the truth it's. Say that again. It's the shoe fits. Yeah, yeah. I just, like, even looking at their faces, I just, it makes me angry because, yeah. Why did they deserve to have a life over Stephen? Like, Stephen had so much more ambition than these boys clearly had. Yeah. And that's what's so saddening. So, yeah, just to repeat, within the first 48 hours, the police had names of these boys and they did nothing. The only thing, they, they had grounds to arrest them, oh. but they did not to. After, four, after 48 hours, you can make arrests with the names that you've get, you yeah. given. Um, instead, they chose to put these boys in surveillance, but even then they did not do enough. They had videos of these boys leaving their houses with black bin liners filled with probably evidence that they could have used. And they just let that pass. They just let that go. They even got surveillances of these boys talking in the most obscene manner. Like they were talking about skinning black boys, <gasps> burning them alight. And they even captured videos of like them playing around with machetes. Like these, these kids are thugs, man. Like I don't, I don't know kids because they're very aware of what they're doing. How old are they? This is something that we should actually consider. They were in. The, they were over seventeen. <gasps> They're old I enough. I have this, yeah, I have this idea that they were like thirteen for some reason. I don't know why. No, Stephen was eighteen when he was murdered. These boys were around the same age. They were seventeen and over. <sighs> they knew what they were doing, and I think in the end, I'll show you. I'll tell you guys about it, of course. But the life sentences that they got was not enough, in my opinion, but we'll get to that. Anyways, arrests were finally made in June 1993. So after a couple of months, a couple of arrests were made. Dwayne was able to identify Neil Akel and Luke Knight. But the Crown Prosecution Service, who basically decide whether a, a case is a criminal case or not, decided to drop the charges because they didn't trust Dwayne Brooks' testimony. They didn't trust him and they said it was a lack of evidence. This is Stephen's friend, Dwayne. So you're telling me that he's there, he's witnessed everything, but 
his evidence isn't credible. It just doesn't make sense to me. Me neither. What's sad is that CPS actually rejected this case twice. So Stephen's family, Doreen and Neville, actually had to take it into their own hands and they chose to do a private prosecution. Again, this is where it gets sad. Oh, God. They took, the, they took Neil Akel, Luke Knight and Gary Dobson into a private prosecution. Um, and again, the charges were dropped because there was not enough evidence. And they kept pointing back to Dwayne Brooks's evidence was not enough. It was inadmissible. So from Doreen and Neville's point of view, like how are they ever going to get justice for their boy? boy? This was in 1996, so even like three years past and they're still unable to there's just, take these boys to court. Yeah, there's just no rest. Like there's no, oh, I don't even know, respite from the grief that you must be feeling and the frustration that the system is not doing any better. This court case, it still spans today because three of his murderers are still walking free. Oh, that's ridiculous. It took over 19 years just to get two people into court, into into prison. This is how long it took. And this is like the fight that his mum was, his parents were having to get justice for Stephen. Um, so, yeah. So the fact that these boys were tried twice meant that double jeopardy kicks in. This was a law at the time that meant that they could not be tried for the same case more than twice. So for years that these boys were free, they were able to live their life. They were able to have kids and have a life that Stephen was not given the privilege to have or because of the color of his skin. Because they took it away from him. Say that again? Yeah, they took it away from him and they were able to live it. And they, oh my gosh, just just think, if Stephen was alive, like the life that he would have lived in comparison to these lot. He would have done good things. Yeah, exactly. So in 1997, the coroner inquest is, is, it was still in play. Like this is where the coroner can decide whether there was foul play in this murder. And they confirmed that it was an unlawful racist attack um, and Stephen, Stephen's family made a formal complaint against the police complaints authority. This is where we open the doors to how corrupt the police force. Oh God. The inquiry led to McPherson's report, which was a 350 page report about how, how institutional racism is alive in the police force. They did investigations um, into it and they found so much evidence. There's actually there's actually a few documentaries that people can watch to see how corrupt how corrupt the police force is. Um, and one line that I want to quote was so because of double jeopardy, Stephen's murderers were able to walk free. They couldn't be tried again, not until there was a change in this in this law, which I'm gonna tell you now took over took over five years to even get a change for that. Um, so yeah, it's 1997. Doreen and Neville still have not got justice for their son's murder. Um, and the coroner, the coroner inquest, which happens alongside everything, confirmed that this was an unlawful racist attack. 
Um, and this actually prompted Stephen's family to make a formal complaint against the police. The problem with this case, like I've just mentioned before, of how the police officer didn't even know, did not administer first aid to Stephen as he lay there dying. Corruption is all over this case. So from this, from this coroner's inquest and Stephen's family's persistent campaigning to get justice, a public inquiry has started. This inquiry, mm -hmm. you guys, <laughs> I think the wine's getting to me. This inquiry actually forced the Home Secretary at the time to identify what was wrong in the system. Because like, this 1997, this is four years after his death, and he still has not got justice. So this is where the McPherson report began. And it was a 350-page report that took two years to collate. Um, basically, it outlined the, the institutional racism in the Met Police. Basically, it outs the Met Police as, quote, unquote, marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism, and a failure of leadership. And this, like I said before, we see this throughout the last few years of how you've gone from the police officer that, that did nothing to help Stephen to the police that to had tw over 26 tip-offs of who these murderers were and still not charging them. Um, and something to actually note from this is that one of the superintendents at the time of Stephen's death said that he didn't know that he could arrest these boys. He didn't know that he could arrest them on the basis of suspicion. Like, are you doing your job if you don't know, if you don't why is he a superintendent then? They're oh, he has now. So angry. And even to the point of how the police treated Dwayne, like the boy just saw his friend get murdered and you're treating him like a suspect instead of a instead of a victim. Yes. Oh. He's giving you he's giving you all the evidence you need. He's telling you these two people were involved, but you're not taking it in because of your own biases against him. Because he's a black boy, you're just assuming he's a part of a gang or something like that. Even to Stephen, the boy who has died, you're telling you're telling me that you think he's a part of a gang and he knew who his murderers were. Like, the gang where? Find me the gang then. <laughs> exactly. Oh. This is why this case just infuriates me. And the fact that it's so close to home just hits it even more. I know. Crazy. There was something that Dwayne said that I actually wanted to quote. Dwayne said, at the scene, the police treated me like a liar, like a suspect instead of a victim, because I was black. They couldn't believe that white boys would be attacking us for nothing. What? You, you knew what these white boys were. Like, I'm talking about the police here. You knew that they were thugs. They're evil. There's, like, nothing but evil in them. Did I say there was, there was something so scary about these boys that witnesses actually couldn't come forward. There was a story about how David Norris, one of the murderers of Stevens, the one with dad, the thug dad, the one with a thug dad, had shot a woman in the throat from speaking out. This was unrelated to Stevens' case, but he was capable of doing that. So the fact that they know what these boys and their family are capable of just shows you how incompetent that they are in taking justice for Stephen. Does that make sense? It does make perfect sense. And I've had a thought, like, do you think that there was ever any small part of the police that was like, do you know how gangsters have, like, police on their payroll and stuff like that? Do you, has that ever occurred to you? Like, I you definitely think, think that was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the police were probably afraid of them too. But there's, like, a mix of 
a, a racist police force as well as that too. People knew who David Norris was and his dad and these thuggish boys. So I would not be surprised if they were just paying them out. Yeah, to keep quiet. Yeah. Madness. So yeah, this final report came out in 1999. Um, and there was actually, there's, there's tons of documentaries out there and like watching them, at, it just, it, it kind of got to me how you can't trust anyone, even the police force. Um, it was through all the reinvestigations into um, into police corruption, and they had over this. This is why this report is so important. They had over seventy suggestions to tackle discrimination in the Met Force, and also what was key was that they even suggested to rethink the double jeopardy law, which was that law that meant that they couldn't be tried more than twice. Yeah, I know they've dropped that in the US now. They dropped it here too, and it That's was. Good because of this wow yeah there's like so, a whole film about it sorry like in the about a u.s woman her husband frames her for his murder so she ends up doing the time in jail and then the rule is that you can't get tried for the same case twice so then she yeah. came out of jail and then killed him and then got away with it because she's already done her time for it gosh what film is this it's called double jeopardy it's got Ashley Benson in it. No, not Ashley Benson. Ashley Jensen. And is this the one with with Morgan Freeman as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, I love it. It's such a good film. It's so interesting to know how the law works. I know. I love it. Same. Yeah, so actually, in 2005, the double jeopardy was scrapped in this country. Woo! That took time, though. Considering this report came out in 1999... Disgusting. That's six years of you making a change for that. Um, but McPherson didn't only attack the Met Police. He like this report wanted reform in the British civil service, the local government, and even the NHS schools as well. Which you know what this actually makes me sad because we're still fighting for changes in schools now and in the NHS. To be honest, like there's still a whole um, dilemma about black people especially like pregnant women not receiving the help that they need like black people mortality rate is a lot higher yeah like five times higher it's just i just it i do you know what it leaves me lost for words sometimes because i just cannot fathom that level of racism and discrimination like it just doesn't make any sense to me i think what gets to me is that this country is built on the back of black and brown people and yet like they're not treated equally exactly it will never make any sense to me yeah we'll probably go into that like the whole the whole wind system i know finally enough in the book that i just finished queenie they mentioned windrush because her family is jamaican and they all like settled in brixton and stuff what's annoying that this is all so recent like the 60s was not that long ago no it really wasn't in the grand scheme of things it really wasn't and yet we're still fighting the same good fights it's crazy i never understand it but some change is better than no change we just need to exactly exactly so yeah going back to my case hold on a sec okay so double jeopardy even though it was scrapped you still needed it to be approved if you wanted a retrial so in order for you to take a in order for you to take a case to a retrial you needed to have new evidence Mm. sense yeah so in this case, Stephen's parents were still on it. They were like, they were, they weren't giving up. They were going to get justice for Stephen somehow. 
Um, and in 2006, they were on a cold case to find new evidence to get a retrial. And by 2007, guys, 2007, they managed to find evidence, new evidence against Stephen's murderers. Oh, my God. And I know. 2007 is, what, 14 years after his death. 14 years to find new evidence. I can't. That's mind-blowing. So they found a microscopic blood stain in Dobson's jacket oh. and... This little informa- this little fact like blew my mind. That little blood stain had one in a billion chance that it belonged to anyone other than Stevens. And guess what? It belonged to Stevens. Yes, God was on their <laughs> side. Oh no, my god. One in a billion chance. Amazing. I like I can't wait for you to start talking about yours because it's just reading and seeing all the documentaries about Stephen's murder and just how long it took them to get to get justice was quite mind blowing. Yeah, because oh, it's our country and it's only the nineties and two thousands that it's happened. Um, but yeah, so they found this microscopic blood, like little blood drop in Dobson's jacket, and also they found Stephen's hair and clothes fibers in Norris's bedroom, like in an evidence bag that had come from. Norris's bedroom so it hadn't so, been or... I think in that time in the 90s DNA testing and all of that was not as popular as it is today yeah true time was on their side in this case in the sense that technology had advanced enough to like finally look into things I think it was just lucky that they had these evidence still lying around to be tested yeah because from the beginning of my case it seems as though they were only relying on Dwayne's accounts of things and not yeah. actually looking at the actual scientific parts of it. So so a lot why of weight for one little boy to carry. Yeah, he's suffered so much PTSD. I keep repeating this. The, that boy has suffered so much. You saw his friend die and he was accused. Exactly. More than anyone else. Disgusting. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it is disgusting. So finally, we have some justice. Finally. To, like, we, have enough, we have enough to try two of these boys. Yeah. So by 2011, the Court of Appeal approved a retrial because they have evidence and that this meant that this double jeopardy law could be quashed. And I have, so they were quashed for David Norris specifically because he meant he was under that whole double jeopardy. Oh. Chris Starwell was involved in the application. Oh, okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Big up Keir. <laughs> I even say his name right. Is it Keir or Kai? <laughs> You're on your own, pal. <laughs> but I love you say your name. I love you. Um, because of this DNA evidence, they only went for Dobson and Norris because that's what the evidence showed. Mm-hmm. So I know there was five of them, but you can only... I think the best way to get some justice and no justice was to go for the two. And that was their plan. Um, And on January 2012, Dobson was sentenced to 14 years and Norris was sentenced to 15 years. Is that Uh, all? But this is is what's quite sad because the average life sentence should be around 25 to 30. Yeah. Because they committed these crimes as teenagers, only get life as life as though they were teenagers yeah. makes sense but that has been like that has been disputed because i think 
yeah going into it there's been a lot of research into what a life sentence should be for a teenager and some have said it should be about 20 years or so I think I've heard this debate before I don't know man I don't know it must be a hard job being a judge oh my god 100% but what's important about this is that Doreen has never stopped trying to get justice it took over 19 years just to get some justice to Stephen it's like I said only two of them were convicted yeah Yeah. still walking free because we're in this area I actually know know people that know their kids that they're able to live freely and have a life that Stephen never managed to get because they decided to kill him like and for what color of his skin exactly for what oh it's so recent and it's so close to home and they're still living their life they're having kids Mm. they've got a life and based on those little those little stories I've heard they've really not changed much like I think Norris was Norris was in jail in 2002 for abusing a black police officer these boys are racist in their soul it's in them they're not changing they shouldn't be allowed to have children because you know that they're going to pass it on to their children and like nothing's going to change for generations to come their bloodlines are going to be horrible racist shit but but I don't want to put the attention on them like no of all of this Stephen now has a day that commemorates Stephen's memory and it's on the 22nd of April every year is Stephen yeah we did dismiss it yeah um and Doreen's struggles have been noticed like her her fight to get justice for Stephen has been noticed and she's a baroness now like there's so much good that has come out we need to like reflect on and remember yeah oh bless her but what's sad is that racism will never never really die because Stephen because Doreen actually created a um a center for Stephen Lawrence and it was like within the first four weeks it was vandalized we can assume it was racist attacks as well you can't you can't remember your boy without having some sort of memory tarnished you by yeah you can't just grieve in peace like I hate that like you, you you've taken him away from me and now you can't even let me have like some small small center to grieve him in the way that I feel like I need to yeah exactly oh. she, actually, she is a very strong woman she actually got his body moved to Jamaica because she said the UK did not deserve him for the way that they treated him wow. and that's kind of just for her yeah man this case has been so much I, oh, <laughs> I don't know if that's, I, that's my case I just let's remember Stephen every yeah. April 22nd let's remember Stephen yeah put it in calendars wow amazing yeah just uh, I just feel like this boy was just cut this amazing life that he could have had I know it's horrible it's horrible to think of like what could have been to put it into like perspective he would have been the same age as like posh spice i read that little fun fact but he's so young yeah yeah this case was so important because it highlighted institutional racism in the uk and it just but the police force really thought it was normal to call people the n-word in recent history like as early as the 90s i thought it was normal that's ridiculous this case opened the door on how racist the system was just is just pivotal to our generation now and what we fight for so tell me about your okay so my case i have done mine a little bit different to yours 
um, I've gone all the way back to the 50s and 60s in the US because I knew yours was recent in the UK. So I wanted a bit of contrast between the two. Um, So I've chosen to talk about the assassination of American civil rights activist Medgar Wiley Evers. I've not really heard of him, to be honest. Mate, he's actually, he's on it. we'll, We'll get to it, the things that he's done and had impact on okay so I wanted to start off basically just by going into his background and his life to emphasize the impact of all of his life's work during the civil rights movement so he was a world war ii veteran serving between 1943 and 45 and then he was honorably discharged as a sergeant at the age of 20. Um, after the war he enrolled at what is now known as the Alcorn State University in 1948 so 1948, where he was a highly active member of loads of extracurricular clubs and activities, and where he then earned his Bachelor of Arts in 1952. This was where he also met and married his wife in 1951, with whom he went on to have three children. So was, just pardon? was this like a segregated union or something? It doesn't say... It was a predominantly, I think what I remember reading, it was a predominantly black college. So up until this point, everything was still segregated. So, yeah. Yeah, I assume so. Go on then. Sorry. Um, And he lived in Mississippi, like the deep south. So everything was so fucking racist. And yeah. Everything is racism comes from the deep south. (laughs) Exactly. I think of like Kansas and Mississippi and places like that. Oh, So it wasn't until after he graduated college that Evers became heavily involved in the civil rights movement. This was mostly inspired by the landmark 1954 ruling of the United States Supreme Court case in Brown versus the Board of Education. So I wanted to go into this case into more detail just because it was so pivotal, not just for the ruling, but the aftermath of it. The justices in this case ruled unanimously that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. It was one of the <laughs> it was one of the cornerstones of the civil rights movement and helped to establish the precedent that separate but equal education was actually not equal at all. The grounds for this lawsuit was that segregated schools violated the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. The courts agreed that public school segregation was detrimental to black children and contributed to a sense of inferiority. So then Thurgood Marshall, the head of the NAACP Legal Defence and Educational Fund, served as the chief attorney to the plaintiff. This was the same man who would then go on to become the first black Supreme Court justice. Yes. (laughs) So obviously the ruling of this case was met with a lot of resistance, especially in the South, obviously. One major example of this that I hope everyone is very aware of is the standoff between the National Guard in Arkansas and President Eisenhower, accompanied by the federal troops. This was due to the refused entry of black students to high school. They, this later became known as the Little Rock Nine. This is that picture of the little girl that's walking into her school, yeah. which is basically just her as the only black girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm li- this is what I found, like, researching this case. It is linked to so many other pivotal moments in the civil rights movement, and it's just I love, blew my mind. I love how planned it was, because I learned this in secondary school, how yeah. and how everything is linked, and it's just, 
it adds up it's perfect do you see why i got into like such a black hole when i was researching yeah. that? like it, it was mad exactly so off the back of this court ruling evers applied to the university of mississippi law school but was rejected purely because of his skin color oh he submitted his application as part of a test case by the NAACP, who named him the first field secretary of Mississippi. Using his position, Evers helped to organise boycotts and set up local chapters of the NAACP. Due to his own rejection, um, Evers played a crucial role in James Meredith's enrolment into the University of Mississippi. Meredith became the first African-American admitted to the segregated university. Yeah, girl. Big up. Evers encouraged and participated in the Biloxi Wadens and protests against segregation of the city's public beaches, privately owned buses, public parks and the Mississippi State Fair. Wait, what was that? What was the first bit? He encouraged and encouraged and participated in the Biloxi Wadens. What is that? So the Biloxi Wadens um, were three protests that were... Um, conducted by African-Americans on the beaches of Biloxi, Mississippi between 1959 and 1963. So they all just basically sat on the beaches because the beaches were segregated and the part of their protest was to make them integrated. Can you imagine like living in a time like this? Like it's really hard to fathom it, like to go uh, to the beach and be segregated. Yeah, it's mad. And the beaches that they were sitting on were 26 miles long. Wow. I know. Absolute madness. Anyway, let me say that again. Due to his public participation and leadership of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, Evers became a high-profile target for white supremacists. He encountered increasingly high levels of hostility towards his efforts of integration and public investigations, including the one into the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi. Oh my gosh, that that case, I always mention it to you. I know. It's pivotal to me. Oh, I know. And I'm glad that, like, I've got this in here, even in just, like, a small part, just so that we would never forget about it. The way he was murdered is... It's disgusting. We should probably go into that in a later episode. Because mm-hmm. it is appalling. He was 14. 14 yeah, years 14. old. We were lynching him. Anyway. Yeah. They shot him in the eyes. Or I didn't know. They gouged his eyes out. They gouged his eyes out, and uh, you know what? I, what I really admire is that his mum was able to be like, you know what? People need to see this. People need yeah. to be racist. Oh. Oh. I agree. So before his assassination, there were two failed attempts on his life. One on the May twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three, where a Molotov cocktail was thrown into the carpet of his house. And the other one on June 7th, 1963, where he narrowly missed being run over by a car outside the NAACP office in Mississippi. This is this is crazy because my mum is born in 1960, so it's hard to think mm, same. this was happening as they were alive. I know. I know. I, it's just the timeline of everything that's happened is so ridiculous when you think about it. Doesn't make any sense that it's wow. 80 years ago and all of it. Yeah. Recent history. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because of the ever-increasing threat of death and the large white supremacist and KKK population in Jackson, Mississippi and the suburbs, Evers and his wife trained their children on what to do in the case of a shooting, bombing or any other kind of attack on their lives. This is what we say. This is what's 
they are attack people are teaching their kids how to deal with police like history has not changed no it has not changed and it are oh, just like this i just you know what i have no words that's the thing no words that nothing has changed it boggles the mind yeah yeah okay we can all go to the same unis and stuff but you still have to teach your kids that they're unsafe and what to do if a policeman pulls them over and and to stay hidden basically because yeah you, the police are not on your side no it's really devastating to be honest yeah it's really sad mm. so because of all of the threats on his life evers was usually escorted home by two fbi cars and one police car however on the morning of june 12th 1963 these escorts were nowhere to be found as Evers arrived home. June 12th was also significant as it was the same day that President John F. Kennedy nationally televised the Civil Rights Address. So I wanted to touch on this as well, because it was obviously pivotal for a president of the USA to stand up on television and like outwardly support the civil rights movement. But I've got a question. Yeah. Was the FBI involved? Because why is it the one day that they weren't there is, I'm guessing, is the day that he was killed? Yeah. But I've read that they were involved in the KKK. So they obviously got, like, paid off or told to not be there. Yeah. It's all planned, all staged. Yeah. So the Civil Rights Address was when JFK addressed the nation on what he believed to be the most pressing domestic issue of the time. During his time in office, JFK sent federal troops to accompany the first black students admitted to the University of Mississippi and the University of Alabama. Kennedy announced in his speech that he would be sending the civil rights legislation to Congress. Sadly, this legislation was passed after his death. It was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson as the Civil Rights Act of July 1964. So when I was researching this, it was wild to see like the contrast of how forward thinking the president was in the 60s compared to the president we have now in 2020, in this 2020. And how like how much the world has progressed in terms of technology and science and how woke we are in terms of other aspects of life compared to the sixties. I think they what they were aware, they just were choosing not to be aware. Whereas mm-hmm. what now is a guy that again is aware but is choosing not to be aware. Like our yeah. last episode where he he was like, What have you got to lose? Like oh this guy doesn't really care. That's the no, difference. He's a fucking racist. Racist, rapist, ignorant piece of shit. But Welcome to my TED Talk on fucking Donald Trump. Something controversial to JFK. Was he doing it for both or was he doing it because he actually cared? That's my question. He actually cared. Mm, we could question it, though. I... No. He cared I more don't... than others, but he knew that the black vote was important to him. Hmm. But black voters were disenfranchised at this point, so they couldn't vote anyway. Back to my case. So because of this address that JFK made on TV, Evers felt that he was in even greater danger than usual on this particular day. And unfortunately, he was right. 
So as Evers arrived home where his wife and children were waiting for him, Evers was shot in the back with a bullet from an Enfield 1917 rifle that passed through his heart. He managed to stagger to his front door before collapsing. His wife was the first person to reach him and was quick, and he was quickly taken to the local hospital in Jackson where he was refused entry because... My goodness, because he's black. Because he's black. His family then had to explain who he was and eventually he was admitted, becoming the first black person to be admitted to an all-white hospital in Mississippi. So that's what it took. I can't get over this. Sorry. Yeah. You, you're rather, you need to know who the person is before you admit them into hospital. They got in the heart. My goodness, where's your exactly. humanity? And he was still alive. Like you could have done something. So like you never know how long it took. It doesn't say anywhere how long it took for them to persuade, for them to let him in. So that time could have been crucial to mm-hmm. saving his life. It's just crazy. So Evers died in hospital fifteen minutes later. He was mourned nationally and buried on June the 19th in Arlington National Cemetery, where he received full military honours in front of a crowd of more than 3,000 people. I don't know how I feel about it. It's not enough. Like, you let the man die, essentially. So yes. How is, how is commemorating him like that enough? It's not enough. Not enough at all. So his assassination touched many lives, and afterwards, approximately 5,000 people marched through Jackson with Martin Luther King as one of the leaders of the procession. (laughs) We know this all too well given the events recently that the Mississippi police assembled in full force at the protests in riot gear with rifles in case things turned violent. And whilst tensions were high, the march remained non-violent. Of course they were. Is that not what they did in the last protest? Oh, exactly. And who was it that they really needed protecting from? I'm not going to say out loud. Yeah. But... <laughs> Fucking white people. Yeah. I'm half white, I can't say that. Please um, So obviously you may have noticed I haven't yet mentioned the name of Evers' killer. And that is because I wanted this to be purely about Evers' life and all the positive impact he had on the civil rights movement. But right. I'm going to now go into a little bit of detail into his killer and the trials. So... Byron Della Beckwith was an American white supremacist, Klansman, obviously, and member of the White Citizens Council, which was formed to resist the integration of schools following the ruling of Brown versus Board of Education. Exactly. So Beckwith was arrested on June 21st, 1963, and was prosecuted twice for the murder in 1964, with both trials ending in hung juries. Why? Because the jury was probably white and let him yeah. off. Yeah, we're getting to it, sis. <laughs> this was partly because... <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> laugh. <It's> serious. <laughs> so this was partly because Mississippi had disenfranchised black voters since 1890, so they were excluded from serving on juries. During the second trial, the governor of Mississippi, Ross Barnett, interrupted while Evers' widow was testifying to shake Be- Beckwith's hand. If that isn't racism systemic racism institutional racism then i don't know fucking know what how are, you, how are you interrupting me when i'm talking about my husband yeah my husband that 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 man there killed and you're shaking his fucking hand yeah he died Marty, that man there i'll jump off the stand i'll kill him i'll rip his eyes out <laughs> i'll be so angry what i've done <laughs> it's not funny sorry oh no it's fine so all charges were dismissed in 1969 
However, in the 1980s, the Jackson Clarion Ledger, which was a newspaper, published reports on its investigation of the Beckwith trials in the 1960s. It was found that the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission had worked, worked against the civil rights movement and in this case had used state resources to pick a jury who would aid the defence and be sympathetic towards Beckwith. Can I just say, they still do that today. Like the American law, I don't know how it works, but they pick their jury. It's not just random. They pick people that are will be specific to what will help them win the yeah. case. And that baffles me, like how would that... Even though it's help? supposed to be the opposite. It's really weird how yeah. it works. So, because of these findings, as well as the pressure applied by the NAACP, um a retrial commenced in 1994. So new evidence, such as a murder weapon covered in Beckwith's fingerprints, the testimonies that Beckwith had boasted about the murder at Klan rallies, and the jury now consisting of eight black people and four white people, led to Beckwith being convicted of first-degree murder and being sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. But hold Boom. on, hold on. You baffled me. I didn't want to cut in, but you said 1994. 1994. 30 years. 30 years. Sorry. Get out. Get out. Just get out. 30 years. Can you imagine? I was born in 1994. That's crazy. I was a whole one year old. Mad. 30 years. Hello? 30 years. And I, my, my goodness. But you know what? What I've learned from both our cases, that it takes time. Yeah. It shouldn't, but it does. It shouldn't, yeah. Like, right. justice was served in the end because his sentence was upheld. Any appeals that he made for parole got rejected and he died mm. in prison in 2001. But was he in prison before 1994? For other crimes, yes. But it was, like, two or three years, nothing major, considering the charges for this were dropped. I don't know if that's enough. Like, I feel like you learned your lesson. I don't know if it should be a what's that word rehabilitation but you no. want anything you just you got away with murder yeah pretty much so obviously evers had been immortalized through books tv shows and films all celebrating his life and achievements there have been statues erected in his honor as well as a highway airport and several buildings and institutes named in his honor to name just a few every year on the anniversary of his death it is commemorated and his home where he lived and died is now classed as a national monument. Amen. All right. Following his death, Ever's widow and brother continued in his footsteps and became heavily involved in the civil rights movement. In 1969, his brother became the first African-American mayor elected in Mississippi and his, wom- his woman... <laughs> his woman? His woman. Oh, his widow became the third ever chairwoman of the NAACP. As I said earlier, obviously, when researching this, there is a lot, 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 lot more that I could have spoken about in terms of Evers and, like, his involvement in the civil rights movement. So, if you are interested, if I have piqued your interest, please go and research it yourself. Like, there's so much more to learn. You know what's what's sad that we have to, we, I say we, that people like Evers has to fight for freedom and justice and it should just be a given it should just be normal yeah it should be without 
thinking. Yeah. You should have a system that will back you, but yet you're having to like teach your kids how to how to behave when the police talk to you, you know? And it's sad that you have to live a life like that. I know. It's awful. It's sad that he paid for this with his life. I think that's the same with Stevens as well, that mm. you have to remember them after death. And yeah. You can't remember what they could have been and what they should have been you know yeah no I know so as I was like researching obviously I saw like I knew anyway that there were loads of conspiracy theories um attached to JFK's murder or his assassination and one of them is obviously that it was white supremacists who did it orchestrated it because of the fact that he so he was murdered in November 1963 and then the legislation was passed a few months later by um lbj yeah. hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today that, that was because of the vietnam war i love american history yeah me too it's so fascinating who was there by again isn't it james l something no it was lee harvey l oswald yeah james l someone is the voice of mufasa James L. Gray. James L. No, Jones. that's not. <laughs> James L. Jones. Anyways. <laughs> so, we're going to go into not reflection time. <laughs> you know, I hate that. <laughs> what can we call it? So, upon reflection, I think, should we, should we kind of weigh up whose case should be winner this week? Yeah, it's hard, you know. Okay. I can't. I I've been thinking about it the whole time, and I can't decide. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try and make justice for mine and say why I should win this week. Okay. It sounds weird why I should win from a murder case, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I should win because Stephen's case was pivotal to today. Like we are still fighting this. I know, but the fact that we have. From his death, we have a report that openly said how institutionally racist this country is, is so pivotal today, and that would not have happened in any other case. He was racially motivatedly killed by five youths, um, and that's why it's important. That made no sense whatsoever. It, it does it? make sense. It does make sense. I just couldn't take you seriously when you said youths, because I just think about Schmidt. No. I was going to say you. <laughs> you. Um, do you know what? After listening to what you said about your case, as much as like I like the one that I picked, and I think he was such an important figure in the civil rights movement and had such a massive impact to the fact that he's still honoured today. But yeah. yours is, I want to say it's more current. Like you said, it does have more more of an impact on where we are now. But in, in in light of your one, it's because of the civil rights movement that we're able to like learn about these things and we're able to relate it to cases such as Stephen Lawrence's and today. So that's not helping. Both... You should have just let, taken the win, man. I know. I am going to still take the win because Stephen's case puts Stephen at the forefront, and he is a reason why we are learning about history in the uk like his his has triggered racism in the uk yeah i think he's triggered more knowledge about it yeah yeah oh god 
I think they're both just as important, but your one is, I think the fact that your one is closer to home, like we've both been on Weldon Road and been on a 286 and stuff, like it's just, it hits you deeper, I think, for us anyway. Yeah, definitely, because that is literally just our end. Yeah, it is is our end, (laughs) sorry. It's where we've both spent like loads of time. Yeah, and Plumstead, where he was born and raised, it's like everything, everything of Stephen's case it's home because it was home yeah I know what we knew of as home anyway yeah so I'm gonna give you the win this week so you can pick the topic for the next one and I'll pick the wine okay that sounds good this is what we're gonna do going forward we're gonna we're gonna pick who the winner is and the winner picks the next case and so yeah I'll pick the topic and well if I want to win again (laughs) fuck you (laughs) okay thanks for listening to wine and crime episode four guys let us know what you think and if you know any more details or anything so all the information that we use to research our cases we'll post on um, our instagram Mm -hmm. and yeah we hope you enjoyed it come again soon come again Bye, everyone. Ciao. Bye. Thank you for listening.